In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text for today is what I've read from Matthew 22. Please be seated. We live in the age of the gotcha question. If you've watched any of the debates lately, you've seen these employed. It's a question asked by someone to try to trap whoever they're asking into an answer in order to do some kind of political harm. And we see this happening in our gospel text for today. The Pharisees send a lawyer, not like the kind that you see on TV or in a courtroom, but an expert in the law of God. He's trying to trap Jesus. Test him is the word that we have in Matthew's gospel. The context of our gospel places Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees in Holy Week. He had already entered into Jerusalem to the, on the back of a donkey to the adoration and acclamation of his disciples and the crowds, most especially the children. The Passover was just days away, which meant also that the crucifixion of Jesus is just a few days away. Matthew paints the picture that Jesus' final days were filled with confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders who were filling Jerusalem for this pilgrimage feast. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priests. And they were looking for ways to trap him in order to condemn him. After entering into Jerusalem, Jesus told parables that condemned both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, the parable of the wedding feast. After these, the Pharisees attempt to take their shots at Jesus by challenging him on paying taxes to Caesar. Then the, then the Sadducees try with a question about the resurrection. And then the Pharisees try again here with a question about the law. In every single one of these three circumstances, Jesus silences his opponents on questions about these important doctrines from the scriptures. Jesus points them to the sure and certain word of the Old Testament to prove that God, through the prophets, taught consistently the law, the Messiah, and eternal life, and that Jesus was, in fact, consistent with those teachers, and that he himself was the fulfillment of everything those teachers were saying. As we know from our catechism days, there are two ways that God speaks to us in his word. One is the law, and the other, the gospel. A Christian must know both parts and must be able to distinguish between the two. Asking questions about the law are not bad questions in and of themselves, as some might say today, but they are incomplete. Questions about the law must necessarily be followed with questions about the gospel. The law teaches us, as if you were to look at one of our catechism students' uh, sermon report forms, it teaches us what we are to do, what God expects of us. And even though Jesus has come to fulfill the law, that does not mean that we are exempt from the law's requirements. Nothing that Jesus did leaves the law unfinished, but we are still required to fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Not for our salvation, 
but because God commands it. So, we are, pro- we are prohibited, for instance, from despising our ang- or angering our parents and other authorities, not to earn eternal life, but because this is what the Christian faith does. This is what God would have you do to honor your father and your mother. This is how the believer lives. The law still stands, Jesus says. It is completed, but it is not destroyed. It remains our sanctification, even our edification, our upbuilding in the Christian faith. It shows us how we are to live in God's family and how we are to treat one another. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Now, the gospel, on the other hand, tells us where we have received the law's demands. Namely, in Christ's atoning work, his sacrifice for us on the cross, but also his perfect life leading up to his death. After the lawyer challenges Jesus with this question about the law, Jesus wants to continue the conversation to bring us into the gospel. He challenges them with a question, who is the Christ? What do you think of him? Whose son is he? In their answer, the Pharisees get it half right. As Maxwell Smart might say, they missed it by this much. And Jesus uses this answer to give them a more perfect answer from one of David's psalms. He not only fills out the question about the Christ, he gives them much more. In Jesus' interpretation of Psalm 110, he gives us the divine doctrine of the inspiration of Holy Scripture. He teaches us also about the Trinity and the two natures in Christ, the divine and the human. And he teaches us about the atonement. That is how our sins are paid for. Not bad for just one little citation from the Psalms. Remember that the Jewish religious leaders were trying to find fault with Jesus' teaching in order to trap him, to condemn him, to ask him that gotcha question. If he dares to try to teach anything that they would consider to be heresy, that was going against their own theology, there would be a loud and a swift outcry. But they can't find anything wrong with how he teaches Psalm 110. This sort of confirms from silence that they believed in the divine inspiration of the Old Testament, meaning that they believed that the Holy Spirit breathed it out. This means also that they believed in the Trinity. They believed that Jesus was both divine and human. And they believed that God's plans for atonement included Jesus' death on the cross. This is very telling of the Jewish theology in Jesus' day. Now, I know that these things aren't really controversial for us churchgoers in the 21st century, but they are controversial among your non-Christian or non-practicing family members, neighbors, and colleagues. And while not controversial for you, these doctrines do offer us comfort in these difficult times. Jesus' seemingly passing remark about the verbal inspiration is given in the words, in the spirit. He says, David says in the spirit that he calls his son his Lord. And in three English words, and this passage from Luke 24, 44, everything 
written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled, you have the comforting doctrine of the verbal inspiration of the Old Testament, meaning that the Holy Spirit has inspired the words that you read on the page of your Bible. You can have confidence when you turn to the books of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, how sure God's love is for you because he himself said it to you. However, there is more that this phrase does. By saying in the Spirit, Jesus connects to his point about the Lord saying to my Lord. That's the quote from Psalm 110. We have here Jesus speaking about the doctrine of the Holy Trinity very clearly from the Old Testament. Now, a lot of modern Bible scholars will tell you that the Trinity doesn't show up until the end of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Most of them will reject the revelation of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism, saying that the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and the Father speaking from heaven, that that's all a miracle and it's nonsense. But we know better. We know that we can trust the Word of God. This medieval and modern Jewish idea that there is no Trinity simply wasn't held by the Old Testament writers, and it was certainly not held in, Jewish, in Jesus' day. Rejection of the plurality of the persons of the Godhead is late. That means it's an innovation. It's new. It wasn't something that Moses believed, but it's something that came along later, after Jesus. And all so-called Christian heresies denying the Trinity are proved false by Jesus himself. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Trinity at the same time. Interestingly, those were just kind of subpoints of Jesus' main argument. They weren't the full thrust of what he was trying to say. David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Jesus' main point here is to show that the Christ is not just the son of David, although he really is, but that he is also David's Lord. David writes about God in the third person. He says, the Lord, namely God the Father, said to my Lord, David's holy son, David's savior, David's redeemer, the second person of the Holy Trinity, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, it is as if he would have said, God said to my son, the Christ, sit at my right hand, be equal in Godhead to me until my promise of salvation is completed. David here is painting a picture of the father lifting and elevating his only begotten son to his right hand when his enemies of sin, death, and the power of the devil are conquered through the crucifixion and resurrection of the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is the atonement. That is, the fulfillment of the promise given to Adam and to Eve, to Abraham, and to all the children of Israel. So David's son is also David's Lord. God has taken on flesh in this stump of Jesse. Jesus is true God and true man at the same time, and he has come to sacrifice himself as a sacrifice for man, to elevate man, to elevate you, 
to the right hand of God. So why are you here this morning? Where do you turn when tragedy strikes? Where do you turn when life is uncertain? Where do you turn when test results come back positive for what you feared most? Or when life and limb are threatened by disease or injury? Or when death stares right at you in the face? Or when the death of a loved one haunts you? Where do you turn? The Holy Spirit turns you to Christ, who is the Son of God in the flesh. David, the son of David, and the prophets in pulpits today point you to Jesus, the only true source of comfort. Whose son is he? He is David's son, and he is also the son of the Father. And he is your Lord, and he is your brother. For he has conquered his enemies. He has put even death under his feet. And so in all of your trials and struggles, in your good times and in your bad times, he is your comfort and he is your rock. All of God's promises for his people, for you, are fulfilled in Jesus. Christ, through his death, has secured for you the Holy Spirit and fulfills the law in you. For the Holy Spirit, whom God sends into your hearts in the waters of your baptism for the sake of his son Jesus, makes you an entirely new creature. And this new man, which emerges and arises daily to live before God in righteousness and purity forever, fulfills with joy and love what the law requires. What would have been impossible is made possible by Christ who lives in you. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This new man forsakes the present life and desires to die and to live with God in heaven. This new man rejoices in all the trials and adversity and submits himself wholly and entirely to the will of God, because the will of God is always best. This spirit, which was secured and merited, that is earned by Christ, makes you an entirely new man. He recreates you, reshapes you in God's image, and causes you to be born anew, born from above, born again. And in this new man, you rejoice in the sweet law of God, which is perfect and lovely and desirable, not of your strength, but in the strength of him who is in you. As the apostle says, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. And so now in this new man, you can rejoice in the law questions and bask in the glory that God has prepared for you in heaven through the Holy Gospel. For your enemies have been put under the feet of your Lord, which means they are also under your feet as well. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.